Hello and welcome to International Forum. We're going to look at the situation in Afghanistan as it stands today, winter of 2009. We all know that the situation there is extremely difficult. Many have said that the Obama presidency will be defined by America's success or failure in Afghanistan. The big question for America now is whether there will be light at the end of the tunnel after more than eight years of war there, after all the lo lives lost and fortunes spent. Our guest today is a frequent guest on our program, Ambassador Robert Finn, who is America's first ambassador to Afghanistan after the toppling of the Taliban government in 2001. A veteran former diplomat and a scholar of Middle Eastern and Central Asian affairs, Ambassador Finn is now with the Liechtenstein Institute for Self-Determination in the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs, Princeton University. Welcome back, Thank Ambassador you. It's Finn. It's nice to be here. It's wonderful to have you back with us. Um, you wrote, well, I saw this in a paper by you, published in October 2009, uh, entitled Afghanistan Still Wrong After All These Years. And you said, the challenge is now greater than it was in 2001. Can you explain to us uh, what yes. you meant? Uh, yeah, sadly, it is still wrong because uh, we didn't do the right things then, and um, <clears throat> we're still not doing uh, all the right things. Uh, the challenge is greater because in 2001 we had a fairly easy victory over the Taliban. Uh, they left when I left uh, Kabul in the summer of uh, 2003. Um, we thought that the Taliban would be reduced to a minor irritating factor uh, within uh, six months to a year. Uh, and that has, as we all know, uh, radically turned in the opposite direction. And the reason that it did was that we didn't do the right things in the first place. Uh, we did not send enough soldiers there. There was a the policy of the small footprint. Um, we did not send uh, enough civilian people uh, to help, and we're still not sending enough civilian people to help. Uh, Afghanistan was shortchanged from the, from the start, and it's still being shortchanged. So all of these things, with the addition of uh, the deviation of policy, personnel, and material to Iraq, uh, led to the turnaround uh, so that we now have a situation that is much more difficult. We all know uh, if there's a kind of illness, it's much better to treat it in the beginning stages. True, true. So I guess one result of our neglect in Afghanistan was that the insurgent network has grown by leaps and bounds. How, how vast is the uh, insurgent? network? Well, it's, it, it's the numbers are hard to, to find, but it's not necessarily that vast. Uh, what, what has happened is that it has spread uh, to Pakistan uh, and that we've had the gradual alienation yeah. of many of the Pashtun tribes. And this is something that, again, was foreseeable. Uh, while I was there, many, many people said to me, uh, look, we want you to succeed. We believe in what you're doing. Uh, we know that you have good intentions. Uh, we hated these people when they were in power. Uh, but we have to live here. And if you can succeed, and many people have come here and not succeeded before you, then we will have to find a way to accommodate ourselves because we have to live here. And that's what's going on. Talk about uh, Pakistan a little bit more. Uh, there's this long, <coughs> porous border. You had described it as, as, as the border is as, as a sieve 
where things, the Taliban just goes over there when they're chased by the Afghan uh, troops and uh, NATO troops, and then they come back uh, when things are a little bit cooler. Um, is it, how important is it that we get control of that border, seal it, so to speak? I think it would be, uh, it's very important, but it's also um, pretty nearly impossible because of the difficulty mm. of the terrain. Uh, the people uh, who are divided by this border do not recognize the border. They, Afghanistan has never recognized it as the international border. The Pashtun people are one-third in Afghanistan, two-thirds in Pakistan, and for them it's not a real border. So one of the problems, uh, and this is very much uh, coming out uh, right now, one of the problems in, in dealing with the government in Pakistan on this is that if we make the Pakistanis push hard on their part of the border, then those people go over to our side of the border. And i.e. in Afghanistan, and and uh, conversely, if if our forces succeed in pushing the, the the Taliban out of Afghanistan, they're going to go into Pakistan and conceivably make trouble for the government there, a government which is fragile in any event. So that's another another part of the problem. Uh, that border, um, <coughs> excuse me, is a relic of. <coughs> the British Empire and exists in the minds of mm. map makers and politicians, not in the minds of the people. Yeah, but I suppose there's nothing much, <coughs> or there isn't anything we can do about that now. Uh, t talk about the, these drone attacks. It's been very controversial. Have they been doing more good than harm or the other way around? Well, in the minds of a Pakistani public opinion, they probably have been doing more harm than good. Uh, in the minds of our military experts, they probably have been doing more good than harm, or they wouldn't do them, uh, because they're certainly not aiming to do Shall harm. Shall we continue? And um, I think we probably will continue. Uh, <clears throat> we heard yesterday at a panel here at Princeton that um, the Pakistani government would like us to target other people, people who are uh, leading uh, the, the uh, uh, Taliban groups against their government rather than the people we want to target who are the ones who are leading the fighting in Afghanistan. So there's, there's a competition for the use of the drones. Then there's the larger issue, of course, of national sovereignty mm -hmm. so that we don't comment officially on the drones. Uh, the Pakistani government uh, as a position, the official position that they don't allow this to happen. It's a legal fiction. Troop surge. President Obama at the beginning of December um, said that he would send 30,000 more troops to Afghanistan. And so by the time all of them are deployed, we would have about 100,000 American troops as part of the NATO forces in Afghanistan. Um, do you or did you agree with the troop surge? Uh, I, th I think if they want to send more troops, that's, that's fine. I think it's going to be helpful. I, I see what the plan is, and I hope that that part of it, the military part of it, will work out. Uh, what concerns me is the, the lack of an articulated uh, plan uh, for the, the, the follow-up part of that, which is to bring in the Afghan government, to bring in Afghan security, uh, and, and no mention was made of creating an Afghan economy uh, that would pay for this. President Karzai just the other day shocked people by saying that they would need financial support until 2024. Yes, uh, I heard Well, that. it's about time that somebody said this. Yeah, so, you know, many, many people have said or asked the question, what are America's objectives in Afghanistan today? What are they? I think the objective, I mean, that would help yeah. uh, define what we should be doing. 
Yeah, I think the objectives are, are um, what they were in the beginning, which is to prevent Afghanistan from becoming a platform for international terrorism. Uh, and I still think that if we withdrew in a precipitous path, uh, uh, way, that would happen, uh, even though uh, we've seen Give me a Taliban takeover. Uh, a Taliban takeover and al-Qaeda uh, uh, resurgence. Uh, they, would, they would use uh, the uh, uh, unsettled state of what happened um, to aggrandize their own power. I think that's th that is clear. I think that is a danger. Um, I believed in, in, in the mission in Afghanistan in the first place, otherwise I would not have gone there. Mm -hmm. I think it is a threat uh, not just to the United States, uh, but to many, many countries. If we, we, We've seen the al-Qaeda attacks. They've actually killed far more Muslims than Christians, uh, but they're um, still active worldwide. So uh, sadly, it is a threat that is still extant, and Afghanistan is still a platform uh, where we have to fight, I think, to remove the possibility of it becoming uh, uh, an even wider threat. But should President Obama have put down July 2011 as the date for the beginning of the withdrawal of American presence? Well, Did you I mean American troops or presence altogether? Well, I, I, as you know, uh, since that statement has been made, people have been rapidly backpedaling uh, as to what that means. Uh, I think he did that in an effort to try to uh, assuage domestic concern and before he said that, uh, I had uh, been saying uh, privately that we have about two years before American public opinion will make us start to leave. So when he said 2011, I said bingo. Um, many have also said the name Peter Galbraith, the high State Department official, comes to mind, uh, among others that for American efforts to succeed, one necessary condition is a, the presence of a, of a viable local partner. And Galbraith thinks that, you know, we don't have a viable local partner in Karzai and his government. What do you think? Well, I think um, uh, that uh, Karzai is the partner we have. Uh, and uh, we're all aware of the criticism, excuse me, uh, yeah, Karzai is, the, is the, yeah. The, the, the partner we have. Everyone is aware of the criticisms. Yes. He, he's now engaged uh, in, in an effort uh, to curb corruption. Uh, we'll have to see how far that goes. Uh, I'm frankly um, um, not uh, uh, that optimistic about that part of it. Um, it but he is the government. He has been chosen twice mm -hmm. by the people of Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. uh, even though this last election uh, obviously had a, a great deal of fraud involved in it, uh, nevertheless, he still won the election. Uh, and, uh, and he still is as much of a choice uh, as the people of Afghanistan have had uh, in their whole history. So we'll have to work with him and push him in the right direction. And we'll only get it as right as we get it. Uh, you were speaking about light at the end of the table. There's going to be there's going to be an end of a tunnel, and it's going to be light there, but it may not be uh, as light as we would like it. It's going to be perhaps a lot murkier. Yeah. Tell us about the state of the Afghan National Army. I have heard good things about the progress that it has made there. I've heard good things about the progress, too. Um, but one thing I've heard, uh, a report I read recently that disturbs me, is that uh, the overwhelming majority of the officers are uh, Tajiks. 
And a question that I've and been they asking. They are about the Tajiks in Afghanistan constitute what about half of the entire population? No, no? it's much less. I was it. Um, I would say it's about maybe 30 percent of 30%. the population, or 30 something percent. And, uh, and from the beginning, I've been yeah. concerned about the the army and who it was loyal to. The Minister of Defense, when it was set up, was Marshal Fahim, who is uh, now a vice president and a leader of the of the the Tajik Northern Alliance troops. Uh, and I've questioned all along who is that who is that army going to be loyal to in the end? And I still have that question. So that's something that kind of troubles me. I have not seen uh, the the Afghan National Army as as being national as much as I want it to be. Yeah, therefore, when the time comes, they may not do what, say, President Karzai wants them to do. Exactly. What about the Afghan police? They're in much worse shape. They're they in much worse shape. The program got off uh, very much on the wrong foot. Uh, with the Lead Nation program, the Germans were given responsibility, and the Germans um, tried to set up a program where they would train um, very good German police officers, and it was uh, a fine program, except it was not the right program for Afghanistan that needed thousands of ordinary policemen yeah. uh, patrolling the country and doing things. And since then, there have been uh, um, uh, at least two iterations of, of further stopgap measures. First, the European community adopted it. Now, the Americans are doing much of the training. But the training is, is, um, is pitifully short. Uh, the policemen are still uh, mainly illiterate, as are most of the soldiers. Uh, and they're seen as very much part of the problem in the countryside. By your estimation, how many more years before we will see uh, Afghan National Army and the police force in enough numbers to stabilize the country? Well, um, I would just have to guess, but I would say um, um, 10 years is the number that pops into my mind. Um, the, with the army, I think it could be shorter. Uh, it, it takes ordinarily it takes four or five years under peacetime conditions to to set up any kind of army. Um, I think with with all the the problems inherent in what's going on there, I, maybe the short side of ten years is what we're looking at. I see. Um, what's happening in the Afghan economy? Is it growing? The Afghan economy is growing. Its uh, the per capita income has trebled since 2001. There are lots of good things that are going on, but <coughs> but it's still one of the world's <coughs> poorest. Excuse me. One of the it's now the second or third poorest country in yeah. the world. So the percentages don't tell you the reality. Uh, in terms of per capita income, it's um, uh, uh, you know a third or or a fourth of of what its neighbors are. So uh, it's still very very poor. It has the potential under peacetime conditions to be what former minister uh, of the interior uh, uh, of the economy, excuse me, Ashraf Ghani said, a self-supporting, dignified, poor country. That's as good as it's going to get. But it could do that. It has, it has oil and gas. It has transport potentials. It has minerals. Uh, it has agriculture, if that can be brought back, and I don't mean poppies. So there, there, there are things that, that could enable Afghanistan to once again support itself. Does growth and development depend on security, as many, many have said? Everything depends on everything else. You mm -hmm. can't isolate any particular thing. Now, President Karzai has for a very long time uh, wanted to bring the Taliban into uh, the mainstream. Uh, I guess it's called what, the National Reconciliation Program? Yes. Um, but America has steadfastly uh, disagreed with him on that. 
Where do you stand on this question? Well, uh, America hasn't so steadfastly disagreed. No. Uh, they were mostly silent on the issue. And uh, what Karzai mm -hmm. said from the very beginning was that uh, people who have not committed any war crimes, people who have not murdered people, uh, um, can lay down their arms, pledge allegiance to the government, and we will welcome them. And that's been an ongoing policy. And basically, our government was uh, fairly silent about that part of it. Uh, people are worried about the big fish and not the little fish. Uh, in any war, particularly in this kind of war, uh, reconciliation is something that, that typically happens. Very few wars end with a total victory or a total defeat. Usually wars end when the parties get, get tired of or, or weakened enough uh, that they agree to some kind of peace. And that's why I said things may be murkier at the end uh, that we want. When, um, when I was there, when we had the first lawyer, Jerga, the only one in the country who, who, who was in the country, uh, 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 was one warlord on the eastern border uh, who denied the authority of Karzai. Everyone else agreed to the authority of Karzai. And uh, if you look at some of the statements that are coming from Pashtun leaders, there's, there's room there for some kind of agreement, which would mean perhaps in Afghanistan that looks a little different from uh, what the people at Bonn envisioned. Hmm. Um, again, in 2009, um, America uh, put a new um, commander in Afghanistan, uh, who is in fact now the supreme NATO commander in Afghanistan, uh, General McChrystal, Stanley McChrystal. Mm -hmm. He has put out this counterinsurgency strategy. It's 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 a three-pronged strategy. Uh, it goes like it it targeting terrorist networks push them back in areas where they've been operating freely, and secondly, to commit tens of thousands of troops to stabilize Afghanistan, and thirdly, train enough domestic security forces. How has um, the counterinsurgency strategy worked, fared so far? Uh, I think they're just starting it. That's why they're, they're looking for more troops. Uh, and as I said earlier, um, that's an action plan. Uh, and uh, I'm certainly not going to second-guess him on the action plan. Uh, I think that part is fine. But you, behind that, you need something to replace what was there. When, when you have, when you have uh, peace, then you need to bring in stability, and that means economic stability as well as security stability. You need the police, you need the government, you need the economy. Uh, General Eikenberry, who is now Ambassador Eikenberry, uh, said that we, you need to have the engineers following one kilometer behind the troops when they went into these areas to show the people that we're there and we're there to stay. That remains true. And that's the part of the plan that they don't see being articulated. Right. And you're saying that still you, we're not seeing enough personnel or enough... No, we're not. Uh, the, the plan now is to have uh, about 1,900 and something civilian people on the ground in Afghanistan uh, by New Year's Day, which is uh, about three times what we had last year. Well, three t again, percentages, three times is great, uh, but three times what? Uh, we're 100,000 soldiers, and we're going to have 1,000 civilians, and where are they going to be? Are they going to be locked up in the embassy? Not all of them, certainly, uh, but they need to be out working with people. So I don't see this side of the program, and it's, I'm not blaming this on the Obama administration. This mm. has gone on for, for many years, actually, mm. uh, from the time of... of um, Operation Provide Comfort, uh, with which I was involved uh, in, in, in northern Iraq, when we realized that we would have uh, civilian problems and we need to develop a civilian capacity to deal with these things, and we frankly have not done that. Yeah, 
Yeah, and and I think in addition, there seems to be other questions about our own military effectiveness. I was struck by what I found in the New York Times, December eighth, uh, a piece written by an army officer uh, it, it called "The Next Search: Counter Bureaucracy," and I'll read this to you. In my experience, decisions move through the process of risk mitigation, like molasses. When the Taliban arrive in a village, it takes 96 hours for an army commander to obtain necessary approvals to act. In the first half of 2009, the Army Special Forces company I was with repeatedly tried to interdict Taliban. By our informal count, however, we and the, and the Afghan commandos we work with were stopped on 70% of our attempts because we could not achieve the requisite 11 approvals in time. Our vehicles sink into wet roads and crush dry ro roads because they're too big and heavy, uh, things like that. Uh, so you really have to uh, wonder just you know, well, could, uh, we, could we change some of this? Well, obviously we could change it, that, and, and he's telling it from his point of view. Uh, uh, you and I are not purvey to what else was going on. Certainly 11 approvals sounds like a, an extreme number. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, uh, there, there are many other considerations in the military action. Uh, so I can't really speak to the specifics of, of what was going on. But uh, bureaucracy, uh, uh, as we know, is always with us. And, uh, and one of the problems of, of Afghanistan is getting things done quickly. And a lot of mistakes were made because they, they tried to do things too quickly and didn't think through the process. Um, but uh, that's, that is the nature of government. We're more efficient than, than some other governments, and perhaps we're less mm -hmm. efficient uh, than yet other governments. The, <laughs> the Turks have a saying because the Turks are very good at starting things off uh, but not necessarily at finishing and so they say you should start like a Turk and finish like an Englishman. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, okay, talking about Englishmen, uh, talk about the, you know, the, the NATO efforts as a whole. They're really not pulling their weight, are they? No, they're not. And is there any way of getting them to do more? I know they've said that, you know, uh, after we declared our surge policy that they will send more troops. But when you look at the troops that, that will be returning home, uh, when you balance the number of troops that will be returning home to the various countries and the new troops they'll be adding, it's, they cancel each other out. So, you know. That's right. Uh, the, the, the brunt of the fighting has been borne by, uh, uh, by the U.S., the U.K., Canada, uh, France, uh, Holland, and, and, uh, and um, uh, uh, Denmark. And the other countries have, uh, of course, there are many, many smaller countries that have also been in the fighting. But uh, there are many countries that have put caveats on the troops that won't let them do fighting. And political leaders have represented this to their people as though it were a, a humanitarian effort, which it is, but they have not um, made it clear to the people that they are fighting a war and they are fighting a war because of a threat to them as well. Uh, and I saw from the start that this was going to be a litmus test for NATO. This is the first war that NATO has been in uh, as a war against a NATO member. Uh, and uh, with many uh, military alliances, you see that when it comes to fighting in battle, if you look at history, 
Not everyone wants to take their part, and, and this is a perfect example mm -hmm. of it. So yes, the, the cost has been inordinately borne by certain nations. The Canadians will be leaving in 2011 because of that. They certainly have done their share, uh, but others have not done their share. Right, right. And what about neighboring countries, the, the countries that surround Afghanistan, China? Um, well, oh, some Im not immediately uh, surrounding Afghanistan, uh, Russia, India. They seem to have engaged in what's nowadays called soft power activities in Afghanistan and have contributed to the progress, economic progress, uh, we've seen in Afghanistan. I mean, is, is that, a, is that a, an alternative way to dealing with the Afghan challenge? Uh, in other words, should we be putting more emphasis on diplomacy, on economic and technical assistance? in Afghanistan rather than so much emphasis on the military actions. Well, I, I would say yes. Uh, the short answer is yes to that. And I've long been an advocate of greater involvement by uh, the countries in the region, uh, particularly the Central Asian countries. Tajikistan ended its civil war uh, because they were afraid they were turning into uh, another Afghanistan. Uh, Uzbekistan has its dreadful human rights record using as the excuse the threat of Islamic fundamentalism coming from uh, Afghanistan, and as you know, there are uh, Uzbek fighters among uh, al-Qaeda. Uh, China is making the largest economic investment in Afghanistan at uh, the INAC Copper Mine, $3.5 billion, but they're going to make $80 billion of that, good for the Chinese, and we're going to protect them, which I raise an eyebrow at myself. Uh, Iran, unfortunately, because of our relations with Iran, Iran could have been a much bigger and better partner uh, in Afghanistan, but because of our own problems with Iran, that hasn't happened. Uh, India and Pakistan, uh, uh, many would say, are fighting a proxy war in Afghanistan, and until they stop, both of them stop doing that, uh, there's not going to be any peace in Afghanistan. So Explain uh, that. India and Pakistan fighting a proxy war in Afghanistan. Right. Pakistan, Is it over the Kashmir issue? It's partly over the Kashmir issue. It's, um, it's also because Pakistan is uh, uh, fundamentally uh, um, paranoid with good reason uh, because it, uh, I think of it as an, uh, the inadvertent country. Pakistan suddenly was born... Uh, in 1947 when no one really expected that to happen and, and uh, for many months afterwards people thought there would be a resolution and, and uh, it would all be India again. Well that didn't happen uh, and uh, as you know it's had several wars with India. It's a very long narrow country only 85 miles wide at its narrowest point and it's always afraid of, of India. So India um, uh, being uh, astute in foreign relations has been um, operating in Afghanistan to make the, um, uh, the the Pakistanis more uh, uh, worried. India to sandwich Pakistan, so to, to sandwich speak. Pakistan, India, and it, Pakistan, right. Afghanistan. Right, and so uh, when the Northern Alliance was fighting the the Pashtuns, and there were, uh, I, I don't have to tell you about all the allegations about uh, Pakistani assistance and ISI particularly assistance uh, to them over the years and ongoing. Uh, it was it was Iran and Russia and India uh, that were helping the Northern Alliance and and. India has opened its first ever overseas base in Tajikistan, north of Afghanistan, in recent years. So that 
coalition is kind of still going on. So that's another aspect. Now, there are so many dimensions to the Afghan mm -hmm. problem, but the regional dimension is one of them. I, on the other hand, to get back to your question, uh, I, I've uh, long advocated that uh, they bring in uh, doctors and teachers and uh, health workers from the countries to the north where there's a huge unemployment, particularly in Tajikistan, people who speak the same language, who understand the people of northern Afghanistan, uh, who don't require uh, $200,000 a year as a salary. It seems like a no-brainer to bring these people in uh, to help Afghanistan. Is that happening at no, all? No. I mean, not in any measurable not way, yeah. Going forward, I hope the question is okay with you. <laughs> <laughs> if you were President Obama, what would you be doing now in Afghanistan? What would you be doing that, that are different from what he's doing? I would be putting um, uh, increased emphasis on the civilian side, on developing the economy, uh, on creating a regional uh, apparatus uh, to help the neighbors of Afghanistan, who are the frontline states threatened by Afghanistan, um, perhaps with, uh, using the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Um, I would try to involve them greater in the process of helping uh, their neighbor and, um, and not have us be the only ones who, who were doing it. And, and, I think, and I would work more on developing the Afghan economy and on developing governance um, and and, and that means setting up uh, training programs for government officials, doing the kind of things th that USAID uh, used to do um, 30 years ago. Uh, and some of this is already going on, but I would, I would step it up. You have to create models of, of excellence. Uh, they could do that by picking a particular province, one maybe that's not involved in the fighting, and doing it there. You have to show people that it can be done. How much more do you think, in, in terms of um, um, economic resources, uh, should we be stepping up to put into Afghanistan with, with all these activities you say should be happening, that you would like to see happening? Well, it's a lot cheaper to, to do peace than to do war. Uh, and and approximately 95% of the monies that we've spent on Afghanistan have been spent for military activities so far. So in a, a time of declining resources, we might look at what we're doing with our money and what we're getting in return for it. That's right, because it's been said that each American soldier cost us $1 million a year. Ambassadors are so much cheaper. Yeah. Yeah, true, true, true. Well, I guess we have a long road ahead. Do you think that we have the stomach to stay there for as long as it takes to stabilize the country, given how important it is? Uh, we're going to stay there as long as we do, and, um, and uh, we will try to make it as good as we can, and at some point we will leave. And I don't think um, that we will be completely satisfied when we do leave with what we left behind. That's it for today. A long way ahead. Uh, thank you, Ambassador thank you. Finn. It's always a pleasure having you. Thank you for watching. Uh, this is Mei Chang for International Forum, and see you next time. <laughs>